0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. For centuries, therapies like acupuncture and massage therapy were an important part of Eastern medicine. But it's only been in recent years that complementary and alternative
2: medicine has come into its own in the Western part of the world. Or something that conventional medicine doesn't have a good answer for. Fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic headaches. They may not understand it, they may not value it, but maybe a third you get a pretty good result
3: we'll hear about how integrative medicine is being used side by side with conventional medicine to treat disease
2: and new
1: research shows that cholesterol lowering statins may be of help to more people than previously thought
3: also on the program shoulder replacement getting an artificial shoulder may restore movement that you thought was lost forever
1: all that along with this week's health and medical news right after this Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheid. And
3: I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Complementary and alternative medicine, sometimes called integrative medicine, draws on a variety of techniques that don't always fit the traditional Western medicine mold, traditional medicine. These techniques include acupuncture, herbal and dietary supplements and massage therapy. That's
3: my favorite of all of them, I the massage is, therapy. Yep. Once viewed with skepticism by the established medical community, integrative medicine has taken hold as an important part of treating the whole patient, the whole person. In the studio to talk about the contributions that integrative medicine is making to modern health care is Dr. Brent Bauer. He is the director of the Complementary and Integrative Medicine Program here at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bauer. It's great to have you here.
2: It's great to be here again. Thank you, Brent. You
1: know, it's been uh, kind of of a long road, hasn't it? You, you're, this is your 15th year running this section of the uh, clinic, probably the 15th time you've been on the radio program. that's yeah, about
2: right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the history. Well, you know, if you go back 15 years ago, what I think was really powerful was the patient interest. Right, Mayo did not have a vision that we should do something in this realm. It was really driven by patient interest. Patients were coming here for good medical care, heart transplant, maybe a knee replacement, just a good checkup. But they kept coming with lots of questions. Is this herb okay? Can I use acupuncture for this? And I think that's what launched the program 15 years ago, that idea that we have to respond to our patients so they have good information to make those decisions about what works and also what doesn't work.
3: And this wasn't just at Mayo Clinic. This is probably, to be fair, uh, Western medicine and all of those different things all across the country.
2: Yeah. I think this has been a really growing phenomenon for the last 20 or 30 years. I think what we've been very strategic about is making sure it stays evidence-based. So when that information was coming to us 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we said we have to do research because the only way we can give credible evidence back to our patients is to know what we're talking about. So that launched a lot of different research studies.
3: The first time I met you, Dr. Shives has been doing this show for a long time, but you were, we talked about alternative medicines. And then the next time you'd be on, we talk about complementary medicines. And now it's all under one big umbrella of integrative medicines. Explain those different, those three different definitions.
2: Yeah. I think that reflects kind of that whole growth in research and knowledge. So certainly 20, 30 years ago, I think the term was, very pejorative, right? We said alternative medicine. We meant it kind of snarky, right? We didn't believe in it. We thought it was all snake oil. And then we got complementary and alternative medicine in there when NIH opened a center called the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And that idea was that there were some things that were complementary. You might have high blood pressure, but you might also take along with your pills. You might do some meditation. You were complementing your care. And it turned out very few people were doing alternative. I'm just going to do the weird stuff. I won't do any of the conventional stuff. And so complementary and alternative medicine has kind of morphed more towards complementary. And then last five or 10 years, integrative medicine, integrate the best of conventional medicine with the best of evidenced evidence-based or evidence-proven CAM therapies. So for example, if I have high triglycerides, I'm going to do my diet, but I might take some fish oil right along with that to integrate the best of both of those approaches.
1: So you think this is the final word? This would be the final name? This one's going to last for a while, complementary and integrative medicine?
2: You know, I think most people now have just gone to integrative medicine. You're integrating those two worlds. I think even complementary is kind of dropping off Uh, The radar screen here. For our 15th anniversary, we're actually shifting the name just to use the integrative medicine terminology. It's
3: interesting that you mentioned fish oil because so long ago when you'd be on the show with us, fish oil was alternative it was oh i'm taking fish oil and there were any studies it wasn't something that you heard the cardiologists talk about but now when we do shows with cardiologists they will say fish oil is part of your heart health so it has kind of it has bridged
2: well if you think about things like acupuncture certainly 20 years ago if we were having this conversation we were practicing acupuncture at Mayo Clinic in a very limited fashion but that was not the norm And now, if you're an employee here, we have a tremendous number of employees who come through every day for acupuncture, for head pain, neck pain, back pain, all the things that are inherent to working at a desk day after day, uh, in a highly stressful environment sometimes, and we're finding tremendous response. So acupuncture has become very well recognized as a proven treatment for back pain. What's your typical patient? Are, Are these patients all referred to you, or can a patient come to you without a referral? So here at Mayo, we've kept it as a referral process for the simple fact that we really want to have that tight connection, so that if you're sending somebody from orthopedics to see me, I don't want to tell them something over here, and not have that be connected to what you're telling them over there. We want to be a, a, a dialogue both ways so that what I recommend I can run by you, and if you have questions about what I'm recommending. So I think having both the integrative medicine practitioner and the referring provider here at Mayo has made that very easy to do.
1: Are there certain physicians here at Mayo who are more likely to refer patients to you? than others and is it uh, 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 not uncommon that let's say they come from orthopedics and the orthopedist says I can't help you I can't figure out how to control your pain you don't have arthritis I don't can't find any arthritis you don't need it totally you don't need it all why don't you go see Dr. Bauer
2: yeah And that's exactly where a lot of people, a lot of uh, my colleagues, our colleagues, have started out. Here's a frustrating uh, situation. I can't help this patient or this patient has an unusual pain or something that conventional medicine doesn't have a good answer for. Think of fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic headaches. And uh, rather than saying we have nothing else to offer you, which is a very sad thing to hear, uh, a lot of our colleagues say, well, let's at least go try that stuff over there. They may not understand it. They may not value it. But, for example, patients with chronic headache, they've gone through our headache clinic, they have had no success, Uh, they come over, we give them acupuncture, maybe a third will actually get a pretty good result. Hmm. Now, that's not miraculous. Yeah, it's not miraculous. It doesn't work for everybody, so i gonna be very clear. But if you have nothing to offer somebody who's in a serious situation, a chronic problem, and we can help a third and sometimes more, then I think that's a great opportunity to say, okay, how do we use that then to complement everything else that's being done from a conventional standpoint. Is
1: acupuncture one of the most common modalities that you use in your clinic?
2: Yeah, between acupuncture, massage, those are probably the two most requested, most referred uh, practices we see. And probably right up there would be also the mind-body stuff. Patients are so desperately stressed in this day and age, and so are their caregivers. So we see a tremendous number of referrals for meditation, guided imagery. Uh, we do a lot of different things, uh, and we have a lot of support from our patient education folks who've created DVDs and CDs we can give our patients so they can go home and practice guided imagery or
3: uh, meditation. Yeah, because if it's just a skill and if it's something that you didn't, you weren't taught by anybody, it is something that you can learn quite easily.
2: And we've talked about this in some of our previous uh, get-togethers here uh, where things like meditation have been shown to actually improve brain function uh, as we age. We can actually reverse some of those downward spirals that come along with aging by incorporating good nutrition, good exercise, and increasingly the research says also do the mind-body stuff.
3: What's the physiological benefit that happens with acupuncture and with massage? What is actually happening? You know, probably, well,
2: no, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably two different questions. You know, I think acupuncture, if you come from a traditional Chinese medicine perspective, we're going to talk about energy flow through the body. Most of us conventional physicians aren't going to understand that because we can't measure it. We're going to talk more about maybe you're releasing substance P, you're doing some other things that are recognized pain mechanisms from a neurologic standpoint. Massage is a little easier. I think we're all familiar with the power of touch, right? I mean, if, if your mom kissed your nose after you skinned it on the falling off your bike, you felt better. I mean, there's a great deal of power behind human touch. Now when you apply that in a structured way that can actually start to lengthen muscles and increase blood flow, it doesn't take too much to see whether well, that might make my back pain feel better or my stress go down. You know, what works for one person may not work for another. So somebody with fibromyalgia, we'd probably stay away from rolfing or some of those very mm-hmm. aggressive massage techniques. Their muscles aren't ready for it. They're gonna do much better with gentle relaxation. Somebody who's a elite athlete and may have some really tight muscle fibers might really benefit from a deep tissue massage. But again, that idea of you should really think a little bit before you jump into any of these, these are not, if, they can, if they're if they strong enough to help us, they're also strong enough to hurt us. So let's treat them with respect, but when the evidence is strong, let's incorporate them in a way that makes sense
1: all right dr brent bauer who is director of complementary and integrative medicine at mayo we'll take a short break when we come back more about complementary and integrative medicine including uh, some mind body practices mind diet tai chi
3: myth or matter of fact a pet can improve your health we'll find out when we come back you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. We are with the Director of Complementary and Integrative Medicine at Mayo, Dr. Brad Bauer. Dr. Bauer, we have learned about a lot of techniques that you're using in the Complementary and Integrative Medicine Center at Mayo. Let's go right to the myth or matter of fact because it's one of the most interesting things we want to talk
3: about. I think this might be the easiest one we've ever asked. Myth or matter of fact, a pet can improve your health. Is that a myth or a fact?
2: That's definitely a fact. (laughs) Uh, You know, right now we have about 15 animal or, or dog and owner teams that are visiting patients in the hospital. Because even beyond owning a pet, having a pet visit in the hospital has been shown to reduce stress, promote healing, and certainly improve satisfaction. So there's definitely something special about having an animal. For most people, dogs or cats. But a lot of studies have looked at how do people who have pets fare compared to those who don't. And in almost all those studies, people who are pet owners tend to live longer, live better, have higher quality life.
3: And you said there's 15 dogs that are working at Mayo Clinic?
2: Yeah, so Mayo Clinic in Rochester, we now have 15 teams. There's a similar number at Arizona and our Florida. And throughout the Mayo Clinic health system, uh, we just have a growing number of dog owner teams who are meeting the needs of our patients in the hospital setting and increasingly outpatient setting as well.
3: So they just go around to the different rooms in the hospital and visit patients? We,
2: we probably have requests for about 20 times what we can actually meet.
3: Wow. So we're
2: always looking for new, new dog owner teams who want to go through the certification and become part of that process. The, the volunteer aspect to much of what goes on here is just tremendous. Uh, besides the dog teams, we also have a number of volunteers who've been certified in carrying hands massage. That means they can go into a room and just do a very gentle hand massage for the patient or the family members who are often equally stressed as the patient. So tremendous opportunities here from our, our volunteers, and a big shout-out and a thanks to all of them. Have you ever thought about having a
1: Mayo dog, getting your own dogs, a kennel here at Mayo?
2: Tom, as usual, you're way ahead of the curve. In fact, uh, I think next uh, sometime in the next week or two, we should actually have our first institutional therapy dog—a dog that we will own and make it much more available with one of our trained staff to go and visit patients when the volunteers aren't available.
1: And what kind of a dog will
2: that be? Golden retriever. Oh, beautiful yeah, dog, yeah, beautiful uh, dog.
1: I bet—is it a pup It's probably grown.
2: Uh, about Not three about years old, and and super well trained because, as you can imagine, we have to have a tremendous amount of training to make sure that a dog that's going to spend a tremendous amount of time, especially with kids, but also older folks, uh, these dogs have to be trained uh, at a very very high level, and also the owner, the uh, the the person who's going to bring the dog to the bedside. It's a great pairing, and it takes a lot of a lot of dedication to do it well.
3: Before the break, Dr. Shives brought up Tai Chi. Mm. And uh, is that something that, I've tried it once, but is that something that you're recommending for patients?
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, Tai Chi is, you know, founded in a traditional Chinese medicine, martial arts, uh, very flowing movements. A lot of patients have heard about yoga, but have a hard time doing it, especially if you're older, right? It's hard to get in some of those poses, maybe a little intimidating. (laughs) Tai Chi is much easier, much, well, not much easier, but the, the flowing movements You get the same benefits in terms of flexibility, the deep breathing, the meditative aspects. But we also know from a number of studies, older patients will fall less if they're trained in Tai Chi. So if we start to think about aging and we want to do this aging well, I really recommend Tai Chi for almost all of my patients over the age of 50.
1: So there's an, uh, one concern as you get older is falls because that leaves, leads to a significant amount of uh, morbidity. But the other thing is dementia. Um, and I know that you have some techniques that, that you use. And I want you to talk about mind-body practices and mind diet.
2: Sure. So a couple things. We know from a number of studies, uh, looking at brain volume, for example, it's one marker for how our brains, how healthy our brains are. We know most of us, our brains shrink as we age. Probably doesn't happen to orthopedic surgeons, but... Well, that's why it that feels like something's rattling around in there.
3: No comment. Continue, Dr. Bauer. <laughs>
2: but, but for most of us, our brains would tend to shrink with age. Now, there's been a number of studies where people have followed patients who actually do a mind-body therapy on a daily basis. And in those patients, the shrinkage is much less. So that we start to recognize that using that stress response, which is negative to the brain, the reverse of that is the relaxation response, people who practice a mind-body practice on a regular basis are probably actually preserving some of their brain function. Mind-body therapy, you yeah. call it? And, so and any, what is that? So anything, if you think about meditation, uh, yoga, tai chi, uh, guided imagery, some of the biofeedback devices that you can put on your computer and measure your stress levels, all of those are trying to train the, the mind-body connection, if you will. Guided imagery? So guided imagery, if you even just think about something pleasant, you know, close your eyes, you're on a beach, hear the waves, feel the warm sand, the brain will quickly perceive that as real. Just like it'll perceive negative things real. If we sit here and think about the IRS coming to our house tomorrow, we'll create a stress Stresses response. Stresses you, yeah. But if we think the opposite, if we do a guided imagery to something positive, you'll get the reverse of the stress response. you get the relaxation response. And that's probably what's helping protect our brains, reduce our stress levels, help our blood pressure do
3: all these cool things. I have to say this just bumps right up against one of the favorite, my favorite things I have ever learned from this program, and that's the word telomeres. It's a pretty great word to be able to trot out at a cocktail party. So explain.
2: Sure. Well, if you remember our conversation from Mm
3: -hmm. a little while back, we were
2: talking about the work, especially of Dr. Dean Ornish, who did a large trial with uh, men who were older, actually had prostate cancer, had them do nutrition, whole foods, plant-based, daily exercise, but 60 minutes every day of a mind-body practice. So they did yoga, they did meditation, whatever they wanted to. And he followed them for five years. And what he showed was that comprehensive lifestyle approach actually made the telomeres get longer. And if you remember, the telomeres are, in a simplistic way, the caps on the ends of our chromosomes. And those caps help protect our DNA. And those caps tend to shrink from poor nutrition, stress, aging, everything in the kind of American
3: Environmental. life.
2: So shrinking those makes our DNA more fragile, can, ex- can expose the DNA, the DNA can break off. So if future cells are not as healthy. We get aging, we get cancer. So his study actually showed we could regrow Those telomeres. We can actually start to restore at a genetic level our health. What about mind diet? So, the mind diet was a specific study, just got published uh, not too long ago. A group of researchers looking at the effect of diet on Alzheimer's. And what they looked at was basically kind of a normal American diet more of a Mediterranean diet, and then a Mediterranean diet that had a little more emphasis on things like berries, more fruit, strawberries, blueberries in particular. And what they showed is the normal diet has a certain association with Alzheimer's risk. If you eat a Mediterranean diet, you had a reduced risk, but the diet that emphasized more berries and some other specific foods actually had a much more dramatic reduction risk of Alzheimer's.
1: So you can test that. Did you test these people or did someone test these people over time
2: to to see whether how their minds were working? Exactly. So they started out at a baseline. Everybody got their cognitive function tested, and then they followed these different groups on these different diets. And so I think what it's coming back to, I think if you look at the Ornish work, if you look at this work with the mind diet, uh, the more we read and the more we learn from these studies, it really seems a lot of aging is under our control. So obviously we've always thought about don't smoke, you know, try and exercise, try and eat healthy. But I don't know that we've always acted on that. Now it's starting to become very powerful that if we're going to live longer, which many of us will, let's go for the quality of those years. And it turns out you better think about nutrition exercise like we've always sort of said from a conventional standpoint, but let's throw in the mind-body as part of that. And I think we've got a much better blueprint for how to make those next 10, 20, 30, 40 years even better.
1: Tell us how your department has, has grown over the past 15 years, and what does the future hold for complementary and yeah. integrative
2: medicine? Well, if you think way back 15 years ago, the first time you and I had this conversation... You were it. I was pretty much it. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's kind of a scary thought uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but actually, it's grown very nicely, and, and it's grown in response to the fact that patients are asking for these things. So now we have uh, half a dozen massage therapists, a half dozen licensed acupuncturists, a number of physicians uh, who practice uh, acupuncture other therapies, nurses who do our mind-body training uh, courses, uh, books, DVDs. I'm going out next month to record some lectures for the great courses uh, on integrative medicine. So you think of the reach, the number of people being touched, literally in the millions per year. So it really is a fantastic growth, all in response to the fact that our patients are interested, the science is growing, and it makes sense if we're going to meet the needs of our patients.
1: The director of the complementary and integrated program at Mayo, Dr. Brent Bauer, thanks so much for being with us. It's Congratulations, always a too. Thank you. It's been fun. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Is there a difference between men and women when it comes to Alzheimer's disease and concussions? Plus, stroke, fast treatment is key. This is your Mayo Clinic Minute. The brains of men and women are different. A study from Duke University shows women with mild cognitive impairment, a precursor to Alzheimer's disease, decline faster than men. Scientists now want to find out why. Concussions are also different for the sexes. A University of Michigan study shows women have worse symptoms and do worse at preseason testing than men. Mayo Clinic sports medicine expert Dr. Edward Laskowski says there are likely many factors, and more research is needed to find out how to help the recovery process. Now, here's something you may have heard before when it comes to stroke, Time is brain, so you need to get treatment fast. Researchers say patients are getting in faster, but there is still room for improvement. If you have stroke symptoms, call 911. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, And I'm Tracy McRae. Two new studies published in the Journal of the American Medical Association suggest that even more of us should be taking cholesterol-lowering drugs known as statins. Why? Well, to prevent heart attacks and strokes, the big killers in the United States. Now, if you're not already on a cholesterol-lowering drug, should you be?
3: It's time for a Mayo Clinic second opinion, Tom. Not just from an orthopedics guy, but from a cardiologist. From someone who knows. Yes, joining us in studio is Mayor Heart Specialist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back.
4: Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tom.
1: Always good to have you on the program. So I thought this was quite interesting. The studies suggest that maybe up to two-thirds of adults in this country ought to be on cholesterol-lowering drugs. Tell mm-hmm. us uh, your opinion about the, these new studies.
4: Yes. Well, they looked at it in an interesting way, Tom. They, call, they looked at it through qualities, quality-adjusted life years, meaning that how much longer can you live with a good life? You know, it's no good if you're living, but you're in a nursing home, demented, you know. So they said, how much help, can we help people by giving them a statin? And one of the bellwethers we look at is like dialysis. We think it's worth doing dialysis on patients or coronary bypass on patients with severe disease if we spend about $50,000 per quality-adjusted life year. So they looked at it that way, and they said, you know, if we give everybody a statin, how much are we going to benefit them? Well, they said if right now the guidelines say if you have a 7.5% risk for having a heart attack or a stroke in the next 10 years, you ought to go on a statin. Well, in Europe, it says if you have a 5% risk, you ought to go on a statin. So they're a little more aggressive than we are. So this is what the paper kind of looked at. And they said, well, you know, if you even go down to 3% chance, it would cost a little over $100,000 for a quality-adjusted life year to have you on a statin to prevent a stroke or heart attack. So you ask yourself, what's it worth in me? (laughs) How much is it worth in me to prevent a heart attack or a stroke over the next 10 years? You know, that's an individual thing you've got to answer.
1: You're talking about your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. And how do you figure that out? You use these percentages, 3%, 5%, 7.5%. How do people know what the risk
4: is? Well, you know, I tell people every day a dozen times to go on the webpage, clincalc.com, and we can put it on your webpage and they can access it. It's com. You go on there, you put your age, put your gender, put your ethnic background, put your blood pressure Put your cholesterol numbers. If you're a smoker, if you're, you know, and it will tell you what your risk is. And what I like about it, you can go on there and you can say, what if I uh, started being more active physically, and I got my good cholesterol up ten points, or I stopped smoking, or I really lowered my blood pressure with all the things I can do. And it will show you how much you 're going to improve yourself and help yourself over the next ten years.
1: so what did the new studies recommend that you do you take a statin if your risk for a heart attack or a stroke is at what percentage? what number?
4: Well, they were very clever. They said this is kind of something people need to decide, and society needs to decide you know how much to uh, how aggressive to be. but they kind of inferred that the three percent risk of spending one hundred and forty or thousand uh, dollars to for patients with three percent risk would mean that 67% of the American adults should be on a statin, but they think maybe that's the answer.
1: Now, now where does the figure $140,000 come from? I mean, that isn't what it costs for the drug, right? No,
4: that isn't, but it's the, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the cost of all the care that's given. And part of it is the drug, but the drugs are very cheap, as you know. They're, ge- they're generic. They assumed about 90% of people could take generic drugs. 10% would need a brand-name drug.
3: Well, if everybody would benefit, a majority of everybody would benefit of being on statins, what are the drawbacks? What are the side effects of statins? Why, why not have everybody on them?
4: Yeah, that's a good question, and there are side effects. And the big one is muscle aches. We can get muscle aches. You've got to realize that you wake up one morning, you can't move, you feel like, oh, my gosh, what did I do yesterday? Did I you know, chop down a tree in the backyard? It may be the statin. You get off it for a month. If it gets better, then you, know, you, you talk to your doctor, of course, before doing anything. The other thing is diabetes. You're more likely to get diabetes. And they actually mm-hmm. go into that in this article. They say that if we, uh, if we treat everybody, how much more diabetic cases would we get? And the bottom line, Tracy, is that when you take a statin, you only get diabetes from it if you're at risk for diabetes anyway. In one large study, you got it about two months earlier mm-hmm. on the statin than you would have gotten it off the statin. There's issues about memory problems. Everybody's worried about memory, especially me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but all the studies have shown that there is no memory difference when, when they uh, assess it, you know, objectively.
1: So there have been some long-term studies on people uh, taking statins and no serious long-term consequences other than maybe the things you yeah, have mentioned?
4: Yeah, long-term, like three, four, five years, yeah. not 20 years.
1: Okay. So we still that answer still isn't in. Yeah. Uh, what about are, are there uh, things that need to be monitored when you're on a statin drug, uh, any blood tests you need to have, et cetera?
4: Yes, the FDA recommends the first time you get your blood checked, two or three months later, get your liver blood test. After that, you don't need to check anymore since usually the liver blood test is going to be abnormal first off. In the first couple of months after that, you're okay.
1: And if that's bad, you got to stop it or switch to a different one?
4: Uh, yeah, it depends on how bad it is and you talk to your caregiver. But if it's about five times higher than normal, then you ought to stop it and follow it.
1: There are so many different statins out there on, on the market. And you, know, you see several of them advertised in the mm-hmm. radio and the TV. How do you know, what if in, in, if you're in your, uh, your office, how do you know what statin to give a particular patient?
4: Well, we usually pick the most potent generic statin, which means it costs you very little. It costs you maybe $5 a month and pick one of the stronger ones. There are certain drug-drug interactions we always look at. If you're on drug A, then you shouldn't be on statin B, something like that. Uh, dosage is a, bi- is a big uh, risk predictor for having problems with muscle aches so we try to start not at the highest dose but at you know middle mid-range dose sometimes.
1: Of, of all the different ones that are available and you've, you've prescribed it for somebody and, and you've monitored it, what about their cholesterol? Is there such a thing as too low a cholesterol? Do you ever worry about it getting too low and have yeah. to back off on the medication?
4: That's a very good question. In a recent large study showed that getting your bad cholesterol down to 50, which is where it is usually when you're born, was actually better than having it at 70 if you'd had a recent uh, heart attack or had a stent placed. So there really isn't any evidence of getting it too low. Now, where that comes from is that people that have cancers, you don't know you have a cancer, your gut doesn't absorb well, uh, your cholesterol goes down, then you have problems in uh, the next uh, few years. But no one's ever really shown that giving these drugs lowers your cholesterol too much.
1: You uh, once told me, as I recall, that uh, there are a fair number of, of heart specialists at the Mayo Clinic who even have a normal cholesterol, a normal lipid profile, who are still stak- taking a statin, thinking that it can't be too low.
4: Yes. Let me uh, just say that uh, I think I might have said average cholesterol. <laughs> okay. Remember, the average man in this country that has a heart attack has a bad cholesterol of about 122. That's average, but that's not normal. <laughs> And so a lot of cardiologists take statins to keep their LDL or bad cholesterol in the fifty to seventy range.
1: And that's what these cholesterol lowering drugs do? They get, get they put get the bad cholesterol
4: down? Correct.
1: Do they get the good cholesterol
4: up? No, they do not. That's up to you with your activity, your good to exercise and eating a low fat diet and stopping smoking.
1: So the total cholesterol goes down, the good cholesterol doesn't go up, but the bad cholesterol goes down. So total cholesterol goes down also.
4: Yes, that's yeah. right, it will.
3: We have about two minutes left. We have to talk about uh, something from last month um, that has to do with NSAIDs. Mm -hmm. First of all, explain what that is and what the concern is.
4: Well, the NSAIDs are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the things we take over the counter like ibuprofen, uh, naproxen that we take for aches and pains. The FDA has come out and said that these things affect our blood clotting, and that can cause a heart attack or a stroke. So you really shouldn't take them unless you really, really need them and you have a conversation with your caregiver or doctor. So what they've suggested is take take acetaminophen, which we can also buy over the counter that's generic, or take aspirin because we know that doesn't affect your platelets, uh, your blood clotting mechanisms in a bad way.
1: Interesting. So in general, NSAIDs, people shouldn't take them.
4: Well, if you have heart disease, you know, coronary artery disease that's narrowed, then you really should have a conversation with someone before you start taking a lot of them.
1: All right. The bottom line on uh, the recommendation regarding uh, statins, and that is go to clincalc.com. Yep. And at what point, uh, what figure uh, would you recommend that people, uh, if they're at that level, take a statin?
4: The guidelines right now say 7.5% risk over the next 10 years. You ought to have a conversation with your caregiver about taking a statin.
1: ClinCalc.com. Got it. All right, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, heart specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks again for being here.
3: Thank
4: you both.
1: Thanks, Dr. Kopetsky, for bringing us up to date on the latest study about cholesterol-lowering drugs.
3: We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, shoulder replacement. Like artificial hips and knees, artificial shoulders can provide renewed function and quality of life.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, as you know, there are lots of things that can go wrong with the shoulder. Some of them relatively minor, some of them pretty serious. And there are some things that get worse as we get older. One of those is arthritis. There are lots of things that shoulder surgeons today can repair and can fix. But when it's all said and done, if it can't be repaired. There is an alternative, and that is shoulder replacement surgery, and it's gotten so much better than it used to be, and there are more replacement options than there used to be.
3: Yeah, here to talk about shoulder replacement and how it how it's decided upon and is, is brought about is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon Dr. John Sperling. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sperling. Wonderful
5: to be here. Thank you for
3: is having
1: me. Is there anybody me. in this world who's done more shoulder replacements than you have? Uh, I don't think so
5: now,
3: Tom. <laughs> is that the you are. To spend most of your time doing?
5: I do. I do lots of shoulder replacements in my practice. I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do that.
3: Who is your average patient? Is there an average patient patient for shoulder replacement?
5: The average patient that I typically see is a patient in their 60s, 70s, or 80s who've worn out their shoulder during the course of their lifetime. That's the typical patient that I've seen. Uh, we see some younger patients as well, but the majority of people are folks that, hardworking folks that have just worn out their shoulders during the course of their lifetime.
3: So it's not a single accident slipping on the ice and then we have to repair the shoulder or replace the shoulder. It's that it's cumulative.
5: It's both. It's both, Tracy. Mm. So it's patients who've worn out their shoulders during the course of their life. And then we also see people who fall, break their shoulder, and the best treatment for them is to do a replacement rather than uh, trying to fix it.
1: Too many pieces to put back together. Exactly right, Tom.
3: What about a teenager, a college athlete, or somebody who snaps their shoulder? And and that's not replaced, though, is it? No,
5: it's not. Most of those... uh, patients have uh, dislocations of their shoulder, they slip out of joint, although we do see some younger patients who continue to dislocate their shoulder or have had uh, other injuries that can develop arthritis at a young age. And we've seen a number of those younger patients uh, sent here. And that can be a challenging problem, balancing their desire to be very active, yet at the same point, uh, desire to have pain relief.
1: So the majority of patients that you see and have a shoulder replacement have arthritis. Most of them wear and tear osteoarthritis some of them rheumatoid, Uh, that's the majority of
5: people. It's interesting, Tom. I think the majority are people who have wear and tear arthritis, similar to wearing the rubber off the tire, and now it's metal against the road. We also see a large number of people who have rotator cuff tears with the arthritis both. That's probably, in my practice now, the most common group. Thankfully, those folks are able to come in now and, and seek treatment for it. Perhaps in the past, people were less likely to come in, but now we have much better options to help those patients.
1: Well, I can understand how that could help with the pain, but if the rotator cuff isn't there, how does the shoulder move? Because it's the rotator cuff, as we've discussed on, on a prior program, uh, makes the shoulder move. And if it's gone, how does the shoulder work?
5: It's interesting, Tom. There was a uh, brilliant French surgeon who came up with this concept called the reverse arthroplasty of the shoulder. So in the standard shoulder replacement, we put the ball where the ball is and the socket where the socket is. And Paul Gramont had the idea to use the outer muscle in your shoulder, the deltoid muscle, to help you raise the arm. And in order to do that, what he did is he put in something called the reverse, where we put the round ball where the cup is and the cup where the ball is, and that increases the tension or the lever arm of the deltoid, the outer muscle in your arm, and it allows you to raise your arm in the air. You do the
1: operation backwards.
5: You do the operation backwards.
3: <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask is how much ha- how much has this changed then since you've been practicing uh, shoulder replacement?
5: It's just been incredible. So that was introduced in 2004 by the FDA, and that represented for most of us at the time 1% to 2% of the replacements. Most busy shoulder surgeons now with 75% of the shoulder replacements they do are reverse arthroplasties of the shoulder to make up for people who have massive rotator cuff tears. It also helps us when people are missing a lot of bone from the shoulder to be able to get better fixation. So it's, it's revolutionized what we can do.
3: That's a lot of change in 14 years for 75% of them to be done that way now. That's impressive.
5: It's amazing. And with the technology and with better anesthesia, the cases used to take two and a half hours to do. Now it's a one-hour surgery. It's one night in the hospital, an arm just on a little soft sling for six weeks.
3: So before 2001, when he had this great idea, were these surgeries just not as successful? Did the patients just not appreciate their surgery as much when they were done?
5: That's right, Tracy. What we used to do back then is just put a, 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 just a simple metal ball in there, a partial replacement. But that never allowed people to raise their arm in the air. Plus, many people continued to have pain because of the metal rubbing against the bone. And this idea actually allows you to do both. It allows you to give pain relief, to resurface both sides of the joint, but also, more importantly, restore function. So these are people who couldn't raise their arm in the air before and now have the ability to raise their arm. So the surgery itself uh, is really transformed the way we're able to take care of patients.
1: So it's interesting that it used to be that the surgery wasn't all that successful because you couldn't repair the rotator cuff. Now you can do the surgery differently, and it doesn't matter if you have a rotator cuff. That's exactly right, Tom. It's just interesting. It's just changed our entire
5: mindset in how we take care of these patients and has really provided some great options for our patients out there.
3: So in the past, you had said, you know, if it was a rotator cuff, they could maybe put off the surgery for a little while. When this surgery has to be done, I would imagine that you can't really put off a shoulder replacement, or can you? Can you just say, eh, I just don't move my shoulder as much anymore. I'm going to be a left-armed Picture now.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's amazing how tough some of the patients are. You see people who have put up with this for years and years and years who've had the inability to raise their arm and then finally come in. And I think in the past, shoulder surgery had a bad name. Huge open incisions, people in slings for three months at a time. Very painful. But this has really transformed how we take care of people and we can get them back faster.
3: I would imagine then if they have maybe, if there's some. I'll say stubborn people who haven't been in Mm -hmm. for a while, that there might be some atrophy of some of those muscles that would support a healthy shoulder. Does it involve a lot of rehab?
5: Yeah, the one really nice thing about this, too, is all the rehab can be done on your own at home. So in my practice, I just have a family member, a friend, a neighbor do the therapy for them. They don't have to drive to a specific physical therapist. I think, like anything, our enthusiasm with this, we've seen great results, but it also has to be tempered by the fact that the the driver on surgery is pain. And Mm -hmm. patients come in, they want pain relief. That's the reason we do it. And uh, we try to use the procedure in these areas to help people uh, improve the pain as well as
1: function. What's the most number you've done in one day? I've done eight in a day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> eight in a day. And how many, do you have a, a, any idea in your head how many of these you've done total? I don't, we've done a number and, uh, <laughs> we've done a number.
5: number. <laughs> a big number. That's a big number, so. I mean, what, two thousand? More. I think it's more than that. I, I, I've turned into a one-trick pony, Tom. These <laughs> oh, orthopedic that's,
3: guys. That's who you want doing <laughs> yours, I can tell you that. Well, so I, hope I, yeah. po-
2: pony. I <laughs> hope
3: I never have to come and see you. But if patients uh, do find themselves with a lot of shoulder pain and they hear it of somebody else who did a shoulder replacement, uh, what should they weigh out to consider to come and see you?
5: Well, I think it's, it's anything. It's the patient's comfort with the surgeon they're seeing in that regard. That's the most important thing, them being comfortable uh, and then asking the, the surgeon the critical questions that you hear frequently on this program. And so they're well-informed about that.
1: You know, he may be a one-trick pony, but he's a horse when it comes to shoulder replacement. <laughs>
3: <improvement. laughs> oh, Dr. John well, yeah.
1: Perl- Sperling, orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. Shoulder expert, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
3: Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us.